The vision is splendid. A world without war and hate. A world where everyone is safe and secure. Pride and mistrust will give way to humility and hope. A world unlike any other that has existed for the past 6,000 years. Is this a reality? Is it a pipe dream? Is it something that we would love to have happen? Or will it really come to pass? That's something which each one of us has to answer and be sure of in our own minds. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the faith to believe that not only will that wonderful world tomorrow come and be a reality, but the more important aspect of it, that you and I are going to be there personally, that we are being trained right now for preparation for that wonderful world tomorrow. At the Feast of Tabernacles, we take the time to get together. We travel long distances. We get together with friends, people we've not seen for a whole 12 months. And we come together because we want to drink in and to take into our way of thinking a way of life that is not of this world. We come here, you might say, for a dress rehearsal for the wonderful world tomorrow. And so each one of us has the opportunity through these days, these seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, and then, of course, the last great day, to actually live the way of life of the wonderful world tomorrow. At this season, we want to recapture the vision of the wonderful world tomorrow, as Mr. Armstrong called it. It was a phrase that he coined very early in his ministry, and we have continued with that so that our publication and our television program are based on that wonderful term, and we call it tomorrow's world. Let us turn to Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11, and we're going to see a fundamental and basic scripture for this particular time of year. Isaiah chapter 11, and in verse 6, here in Isaiah chapter 11, notice what it says. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Now we have here in the audience with you little children. I don't know where you are at this particular time listening to this sermon, but I know that it's going to be played in places like Weewak in Papua New Guinea, where half the congregation are little pickaninnies. That's the name that uh, the people in Papua New Guinea call their children. It's going to be played in Sri Lanka, where we have little children. You're going to be watching it in Mindanao, in the Philippines, or maybe in Kenya, in, in East Africa. Maybe you're watching it uh, at home because you weren't able to get to the Feast of Tabernacles. Whatever the circumstances are, you and I are going to have a part and a role to play in bringing people to a true understanding of the great God. And we can't do that unless we are absolutely convinced and convicted of that in our own hearts and our own minds now. And so here at the Feast of Tabernacles, this is our opportunity and our time to really develop the spirit and the mind of God like no other time during the year. This is a time for us to look forward to the time when a little child shall lead them in the world tomorrow. Let's have a look at some other what we might call millennial scriptures. Let's have a look at here in Isaiah chapter 12 in verse 1. And in that day you shall say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Yahweh is my strength and my song. 
he has also become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. What a wonderful concept that we throw, as it were, a bucket down into the deep well of salvation and draw it up and drink of these cool, clear, fresh waters of salvation. And in that day shall you say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, you inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of you. You see, Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth, and he is going to be in the midst of the nations. He will visit during the Feast of Tabernacles to some of the major uh, areas around the world on all six continents. He will be traveling there, visiting with people, talking with them, encouraging them and leading them. And the part and the role that you and I have to play is to support him as co-rulers in the wonderful world tomorrow. So our position is clear. We know that from the scriptures. We know in Revelation it says that we will rule a thousand years with Jesus Christ. Here's a wonderful scripture in Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 1. It says, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. I don't know if any of you have ever really traveled into desert country. I grew up in Australia, and uh, about, I guess you'd have to say, two-thirds to three-quarters of Australia is desert. Places where you can travel for a day at a time and not see a tree. Uh, it's just incredibly desolate areas. In fact, the, the major highway that connects Western Australia with the eastern states is called the Nullarbor Highway. Now, Nullarbor is not uh, an Aboriginal word, word. It might sound like it is, but it literally means null. That means no, arbor, trees. Nullarbor. And it's true, you just drive all day. And you just don't have to move the steering wheel. And you just drive all day through desert. Well, Christ tells us here through the, the, the prophet Isaiah, he says, The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon. Sharon means a rose, the rose of Sharon. So this is a time of great plenty where at the moment it's desolate and empty. And then it goes on to another scripture in verse 3 where it says, Strengthen you the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Are some of you at home watching this with feeble knees? Don't you look forward to a time when God will give you a strong and healthy body? Notice it says in verse 4, Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Verse 6, Then shall the lame man leap as an heart or a deer. And the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. So we have this wonderful picture of a verdant, beautiful, lush pasture area where cattle will graze and sheep will graze, where beautiful crops of wheat and barley and oats and rye will be able to be grown where right now it's just windswept dust and sand. You think of those pictures that you see on the television of areas of Sudan and, and Niger and uh, Central Afri Africa, Mali, where people there are, are finding it difficult to find enough water to drink. Well, in the world tomorrow, there will be nothing like that. We're going to have plenty and a wonderful blessing from God. 
Notice now in Amos chapter 9, another millennial scripture. You know, as you go through the Old Testament, there are many of these scriptures that just simply make a person become excited about the future. In Amos chapter 9, verse 13, notice what it says. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him that sows seed, and the mountain shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. I'm a keen gardener. I love gardening. And there's nothing more rewarding than to go out and to <clears throat> gather the produce of, of vegetables and plants that you planted uh, two, three or four months before. That's an exciting thing to do. But can you imagine a time in the future where everyone will have their own little plot of land. They'll be able to do their own garden and have the, the quality of produce that God originally designed. Our food will not be tampered with by companies that have got to extend the shelf life. And so they pump things with uh, preservatives. They have had to use pesticides to keep the pests away. We're going to have truly wholesome food, and people will be healthy. It's a wonderful time that God speaks of, and we're looking forward to it. <clears throat> Notice Zephaniah, Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3 deals with a situation where we have confusion today, but then the curse of Babel will be taken away. In, in, in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, it says, For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent or with one voice. You know, God had to bring about the confusion of languages at, the, at uh, Babel because mankind wanted to go against God. He wanted to do things his way. But in the world tomorrow, Satan the devil will have been put away and people are going to actually be able to return to the pure language that God gave originally. Now, of course, a lot of people say, well, that will be English, won't it? Well, no, not necessarily. Well, it'll have to be Hebrew then. Why? Does it have to be any language that we speak now? I know one thing about that language. It's going to have a lot of words in it that we'll be able to use to express our gratitude and our thankfulness and our praise toward God. It's going to be expressive. It's going to be full of color. And we'll be able to communicate with anyone in any part of the world. So all of this lies ahead. Notice in verse 12, <clears throat> I will also leave in the midst of you an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Yes, this is a time in the near future where people will be able to trust one another. There will be no locks on doors. You won't have to punch in a, a key code as you go out and then lock the door. You'll be able to be safe. Your children will be safe. Your grandchildren will be safe. What a wonderful world that will be. And so we can see that God has planned this for all mankind. In verse 16 it says, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear you not. And to Zion, let not your hands be slack. The Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. Do you know what that means? It means that Jesus Christ, when he returns, is going to establish this magnificent choir in Jerusalem. 
He's going to have instruments that will give beautiful sounds in harmony. Maybe there'll be even new instruments that we've never had before. And people will sing and rejoice. And if you read what it just said there, let's go back and read that. It says, the Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest, he will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. And verse 18, I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly, who are, who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. You know, many people in our day today suffer from depression. In fact, the statistics are, are far, far higher than most people realize. <clears throat> people either suffer from depression for a short period of time, but some people have a depression that is chronic. It's there all the time. You know, God says that we should cry out to him and he will restore to us that peace of mind, that joy that can only come through his Holy Spirit. Imagine what it's going to be, what it will be like <clears throat> to go and deal with a people who have come through terrible, terrible captivity, tribulation, who are nervous and fearful who when they see us will, will be cautious and, and extremely uh, you know, reticent. And we're going to have to assure them and reassure them and comfort them and speak calmly and quietly to them and to win their confidence and their trust and respect. That's the challenge that lies ahead for each one of us. So how will these things come to pass? Well, they'll come to pass because one great being, the great God, through Jesus Christ, will bring it to pass. His Son and our Savior Jesus Christ will come to this earth. His saints will be brought from the four corners of the earth along with the resurrected firstfruits to co-rule with him. So the fundamental reason that this wonderful world will arise is that there will be a different mind at work in the world that, than exists today. Think for a moment, if you will. What is the overall mindset that you and I have to contend with on a daily basis? Now, here at the Feast of Tabernacles, it's great. We're, we're away from work. We're away from the people that we normally uh, relate to. But what is the the overall spirit that is at work in the world around us most of the time. It is a spirit of human pride, selfishness, self-interest, instead of the spirit that will be in, 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 in uh, circling the globe when Jesus Christ returns. We won't have to put up with a competitive spirit of those around us but rather we will rest secure and sure in the loving spirit of our Savior Jesus Christ as he settles the people <clears throat> and reassures them and gives them confidence. <coughs> Here is the fundamental reason in Isaiah chapter 11 why we, do, why we do not have peace today. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, and why we will have peace in the world tomorrow. Notice what it says in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 11. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of a quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked." 
Do you know what this says? It says that Jesus Christ will return to this earth and have a spirit about him that cannot be found in this earth today except amongst those whom God is working with and calling. Let's read it again. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of counsel and might. A spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. It says that he will not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. When Jesus Christ returns, he will judge righteously. He will discern attitudes. In a court of law in our world today, a judge or a jury can only go by the evidence that is presented to them. And you and I know that that evidence is tampered with, it's it's slewed, it's it's presented in a way that is going to evoke emotional responses from the jury, you know, and, and facts that should be brought out by the, <clears throat> by the defense are left out. People don't really want justice today. But in the kingdom of God, people will have true justice. And Jesus Christ will know the heart and the mind. And the fascinating thing is that you and I will be given that same spirit, that same discernment, that same understanding, that same spirit of counsel, that same spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. You know, it's a little bit difficult sometimes, isn't it, for us to grasp the concept that we can be lifted from this mundane human existence that we live today to this incredible level that God and Jesus Christ operate at. I mean, there is a gulf between where we are and where God and Jesus Christ are that is, well, it's impossible for us to transcend. And yet, the Bible tells us that we will actually be given that spirit of understanding and wisdom. Won't it be great in the world tomorrow when you are asked a question by someone and you always give the perfect answer? Where someone will ask your advice and you'll be astounded at the wisdom with which you will answer that person. The patience that you will have You'll never get irrit irritable or frustrated by someone. You'll be patient. You'll be concerned. You'll listen to them. And you will see tears well up in the eyes of people as they understand and realize that you really do care for them. That's what's coming. That's what God wants us to develop. And you know what? Not a one of us can do it by ourselves. In fact, not only can we not do it, it's impossible. You know, there are, there are human counterparts. You know, there are people who have compassion and kindness in this world today. But we're talking about something way beyond that. So that there are no inadequacies, no imperfections. In the sons of God. We're going to see a scripture as we just go along a little further that will help us to understand how this will happen. <clears throat> you know, Jesus Christ, when he lived on the earth, left us an example to live by. Let's, let's have a look at John chapter 3. And we're going to start uh, here in uh, verse 32. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no man receives his testimony. He that has received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives not the Spirit by measure unto him. This is speaking about Jesus Christ. Here in John chapter 3, verse 34, it says that God the Father did not Give the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ by measure. He didn't give him 65%, 85%, or even 99.9%. .9%. He gave him 100%. 100% 100 
flow of the Holy Spirit, so that when Jesus Christ was on the earth, he had total access to the power and the mind and the nature of God. Now, he was still human. But notice verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So we can see here that God has given to Jesus Christ, at least when he was on the earth, So we can see here that God gave to Jesus Christ when he was on the earth 100% of the Holy Spirit. Well, we will have the same. We will be a spirit being. We'll have 100% of the Holy Spirit upon us. You know, Jesus Christ's reactions were perfect. His words were always carefully chosen. His judgment was always impartial. He was what we would want to become and actually can become if we allow him to live his life in us. Notice Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1. And he entered into a ship and passed over, and he came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed, And Jesus, seeing their faith, and said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer. He said, Your sins be forgiven you. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? You know, Jesus Christ didn't actually hear them say it. They probably whispered it to themselves. You know how they would do that? So he couldn't hear. But God gave to Jesus Christ when he was on the earth the ability to know what people were thinking and saying. A perception which we're going to have in great measure in the world tomorrow. You imagine, put yourself in a scenario like this. You're a spirit being, you're a son of God, you are a teacher in the kingdom of God. And you've been asked by Jesus Christ to and go down into this country and to visit with these people. And before you've arrived, the, uh, the leaders have got together and they've thought to themselves, well, if he says this, we'll say that and, and we'll put this to him and we'll see what he thinks on that. And so they've got it all worked out and they've, <laughs> they've, they've worked out some great political approach <clears throat> to your visit. And as you arrive, there are cordialities and they're very pleasant. And, you know, there's the, the usual interaction of human beings with, uh, <clears throat> with one another. And then they start to speak and they're very politely, you're going to be able to discern and say something like this. I perceive that what you really are thinking is this. In fact, I perceive that you have talk together and you uh, are wanting to get a certain um, you know, number of blessings from us. Well, let me explain the get way as opposed to the give way, and then you'll give a whole sermon <laughs> to them, like Mr. Armstrong used to, about the get way and the give way. And they'll be astounded. They'll think, how did he know that? How did he know what we were thinking? Just imagine when Satan is out of the way, he will have been... Locked up and chained up. We observe that on the Day of Atonement. But here are people wanting to understand about the truth of God, but they've still got that old carnal human nature there. And you won't beat them around the head. I think a lot of us get the idea that we're going to come in with a rod of iron and smash people into submission. And No, God uses far more subtle means such as no rain for a year that will get people's attention two years even closer attention (laughs) now we'll be able to to work with people and if their attitude's fine uh, we'll explain god's truth and his ways his laws his commandments 
Uh, we'll be able to uh, counsel people at that time to put away all their pigs and and uh, and unclean animals and explain the truth of uh, of the clean and the unclean the way of righteousness and unrighteousness it's going to be an incredible challenge and that's why god has called you i know in the uh, <clears throat> the churches that i served in australia and it's the same in the uk It seems like God has brought people from all over the world into the Israelite countries <coughs> It seems like God has brought people from all over the world into the Israelite countries so that they can learn about the truth of God so that they can be prepared to go back out in the world tomorrow to preach to their people to teach to them to teach them and to instruct them and guide them in God's ways Notice here in First uh, John chapter three. I think this is a fundamental scripture, and it's the scripture I was referring to a little earlier. When I, the first time I ever read this scripture, it just was like it jumped off the page, and it, it just astounded me. First John chapter three. We're going to start in verse one. It says, "Behold, what manner of love." The Father has bestowed upon us. This is First John chapter three, verse one, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew Him not. I don't. I have never known of any other church other than the true Church of God that calls or understands that we will become sons of God. We will become members of the God family. That is considered blasphemous in most Christian circles. It's, after all, it's what the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to stone Jesus Christ for. He said, I'm the son of God. And they became incensed and, and, and enraged by him making that statement. Well, we make the same statement. We say we are going to become full sons of God and the family of God in the world tomorrow. But notice what it says in verse 2. <clears throat> Beloved, now are we the sons of God? That is, we are the begotten sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I always put a title on my sermons. And the title to this sermon is, We Shall See Him As He Is. Can you imagine that? Being able to approach the creator of this universe, Jesus Christ, and speak to him directly? Not in some fearful trepidation, but with reverence and respect, address him and you know that he'll listen to you, and as you listen to him, he takes the time to explain things and talk. That's what it's going to be like. <clears throat> you will have the same mind that Jesus Christ has. None of us can grasp that. All we see in our lives at this time is, are our imperfections, our frailties, our foibles, our failings. Imagine all of those gone, all the insecurities that we have, feelings of inadequacy that lead us to become, you know, insecure and always wanting to make out how great we are. You won't have to do that in the world tomorrow. You will be great, but you won't have to tell everyone you're great. It'll be obvious. The distinction between the people of that are human beings at that time, and us is going to be so great. As we said before, Jesus Christ was able to discern people's attitudes and hearts. So likewise, we'll be able to do the same. But we won't use it to punish people. We'll use it to help people. <clears throat> Last year, I spoke about the fact that we ought to be teachers. And so let's go back to that basic scripture in Isaiah chapter 30 and read it once again. 
It's one of those scriptures that, well, I don't think you could go through a Feast of Tabernacles without having it being read. And I would guess that it's not the first or the last time you will hear it here at this Feast of Tabernacles. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18. It says, And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. This is Isaiah chapter 30. I'll wait for you to turn to it. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18. And therefore will the Lord wait, that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. I don't see some fearful, you know, God that is vengeful and in any way wanting to, to hurt and punish people and humiliate them and make them fearful and, and cowered down. I find a, 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 a description here of Jesus Christ that is very compassionate and kind. Verse 19, <clears throat> For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious unto you. Now, think for a moment. How would you define graciousness? Does graciousness mean kindness and gentleness? Yes, it has that aspect to it. To me, the word gracious carries the connotation of calm strength, bound up in kindness and generosity, an outgoing concern and care for those to whom you are being gracious. That's the way Jesus Christ will be. It says he will be very gracious unto you at the voice of your cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity, remember these people have come through terrible tribulation and adversity, and the water of affliction, though you've been through that, he says, Yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner any more, but your eyes shall see your teachers, and your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, This is the way, walk you in it, when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. So we can see here that God and his co-workers, his brothers and sisters in the millennium, that's us, who will be teachers, will be gracious and kind and merciful. Now, you might ask the question, yes, but what happens if someone becomes belligerent and, and, and angry and resistant and uh, doesn't want to be taught? Well, we will start with just a, a mild form of correction. But if they are persistent, and, if, and especially if they are <clears throat> divisive, And causing trouble? Yes, by all means. Christ will have to use some strong language and then maybe some strong force. uh, Sometimes we have to be cruel to be kind. But the vast majority of mankind are going to welcome Jesus Christ and submit themselves to him. You know, Isaiah here paints a picture of a caring, nurturing teacher who will guide a repentant Israel into God's way of doing things. You'll be given the responsibility over a city. You will not tire or be irritable, and you will not play favorites with one against another. You will be perfect in your judgment. You will be impartial. You will not judge after the hearing of the ear or the seeing of the eye. But you will see the heart of a person, the attitude. Now, think for a moment. Would it be wrong for us to actually ask God for that same spirit now? No, it wouldn't be wrong at all. Wouldn't you like to be, as a parent, this type of parent? Wouldn't you like to be able to discern your children's attitudes? I know when I was a boy... I was convinced that my mother had eyes in the back of her head. I'd be just about to do something, she'd say, turning, she'd have a face away from me, and she'd say, don't even think about it. How did she know that? 
<clears throat> well, it's, it's that same sort of thing. People will be able to understand and rely upon us. And they'll know that we will not show favoritism. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 29 now, which is just the previous uh, chapter. Here in verse 22. This is Isaiah chapter 29, verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. And then it says, notice in verse 24, they also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. Wow. It says, those that erred in spirit. How many people do you know of that constantly err in spirit in this society and this world today? Every time someone breaks God's law, they err in spirit. Every time someone gets into a wrong attitude, they err in spirit. Every time someone gets offended and, and uh, gets carried away with their, their deep sorrow and being upset, they err in spirit. What does it say? They that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. We live in a society where the media absolutely breathes and thrives on murmuring and criticism and negativity. President Bush, or whoever is the, the President of the United States, the British Prime Minister, the leaders of all the countries of this world, have to put up with murmuring and gossip and innuendo, and people are constantly looking for other people to fail. It's not going to be like that in the kingdom of God. There's going to be a different spirit. These are wonderful scriptures, I'm sure you would agree. Look at this one, Daniel chapter 12. Let's go there. Daniel chapter 12. <clears throat> this is a, a scripture pertaining to those of us who have been called by God in this age at this time <clears throat> and even those who have gone before us that were called and come up in the first resurrection. You know, men like Abraham, Daniel himself. This is Daniel chapter 12. You, <laughs> me, the person sitting beside you, your wife, your children, those whom God's going to bring into his church and they will become the first fruits. Notice what it says here in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Sadly, there will be people in the, <clears throat> in the third resurrection. But we want to concentrate on those that awake to everlasting life because in verse 3 it says, And they, that is those that wake to everlasting life, shall be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. <clears throat> You're going to be a son or a daughter of God. Now, we know that when Jesus Christ, <coughs> excuse me, as the son of God, well, actually as the word as he was, and let me start that again. <clears throat> I hope you realize that when Jesus Christ visited Abraham and when he visited Moses at Mount Sinai, his face was so bright that he had to, uh, to cover it, at least in the case with Moses. Well, imagine what it's going to be like as a son of God in the kingdom of God. You're going to have to have a volume control on your brightness, 
<laughs> Otherwise, you'd be so bright people couldn't look at you. You'll be able to <clears throat> arrive at someone's house, sit down and have a meal with them, play with their children, just like a normal human being would do. But you will be a powerful spirit being. What a wonderful concept and thought to, to develop. Now, none of us for a moment believe that we are like this now. But here is the point. God wants us to be of a mind that des desires to be like him, to seek him and to ask him and to be like him. In fact, if you think about it, that is what repentance is all about. Most often when a minister counsels someone for baptism, they say, why, would you, why do you need to be baptized? And the first answer is almost always the same. I need God's Holy Spirit. I want to have God's Holy Spirit. That's a good answer. And it's a right answer. But it's really just the beginning of an understanding of what repentance is about. Let me tell you what re true repentance is about. True repentance is coming to an understanding <clears throat> that as human beings, we are not only inadequate, we can never be adequate in any t at any time to become like God and Jesus Christ. So our repentance is twofold. There is the repentance of what we have done, the sins that we have committed, yes, that have brought upon us the death penalty, by all means. But the greater part of repentance is repenting of the nature and the spirit that caused us to sin. In other words, not only do we sin of what we are, sorry, of what we did, but of what we are and who we are. Because it's the what we are and the who we are that caused us to do what we did. You see, so many people in the world think that repentance is just saying sorry for what we did in the past. No, no. Repentance has more to do with the future than it has to do with the past. Repentance is a, a burning desire to be like God, to think like God, to act like God, and always ultimately to become God. And so this, when we grasp this picture... It permeates every part of our body and our mind and our spirit. We no longer feel that we have to defend ourselves. We no longer feel that we have to impress people. We no longer feel that, you know, our needs are more important than other people's needs. A person who's truly repentant is an unusual person to encounter. Because on the surface, they appear very confident. But that confidence is not self-confidence. It's confidence in God. It's faith on a daily basis that Jesus Christ is living his life in us and that we are obeying him and we are being like him in our thoughts, our words, and yes, our deeds. And it's a process. You don't become repentant all at once. I, I'm sure that you've been through what I've been had to go through. Lesson after lesson, learned and relearned. Okay, the circumstances might be different each time, but it's basically the same lesson. And that lesson is what? God, help me to think like you and be like you. Why? So that when Christ comes... We will see him as he is and will be like he is. You know, the Feast of Tabernacles is a wonderful opportunity to exercise godliness. Let's have a look at a scripture in Psalm 15. <clears throat> Psalm 15. I think you would agree that the Psalms are wonderful, instructive, <coughs> uh, 
ways for us to learn God's truth and his way. And this is one of them. Psalm 15, verse 1. Lord, who shall abide in your tabernacle? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? That's the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem. The holy hill is the hill of Jerusalem. A hill always represents government as well. So it's asking this question, who's going to be in Jerusalem? Who's going to sit with Jesus Christ? Who is going to be in his government? Verse 2, the answer is pretty simple. He that walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. You know what? There's no sense in being anything other than that. Why would we want to be any other way? Why would we want to be false? Why would we want to be hypocritical? What value is there? What's the end result? There's no purpose for that. Verse 3, he that backbites not with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor. Have you ever been with uh, some friends? You might be at dinner. And it's a lovely dinner. Everyone's enjoying themselves. And we're at the Feast of Tabernacles. And we say, wasn't that a great sermon today? Uh, Yeah. You know, Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones, you can really tell that God's inspiring him at this feast. Yeah, and did you know what? I came out of the out of the uh, auditorium here this this afternoon, and there was uh, someone there with you know they had all these bags with for their children, and and they were struggling, and this this man this elderly man came across and said, "Can I help you?" and picked up the the um, the bassinet or the the crib, and carried it. And the lady said, oh, thank you so much. And the dinner's going on and the whole conversation is positive. People are only talking about the positive things. And then suddenly, not suddenly, but at a point, someone injects a negativity. Someone says, yeah, yeah, but I, I know that fellow. If you really knew what he was like, he was just doing that. And suddenly everything becomes negative and critical. And backbiting and nasty. What does it do to the whole tone of the of the of the dinner? Well, it just destroys it. You know, when you go out to dinner tonight and you're sitting there, please don't do that. Please be an an agent of positivity, of kindness. Speak well of one another. Notice what it says. He that backbites not with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned. But he honors them that fear the Lord. He that swears to his own hurt and changes not. He that puts not out his money to usury, nor takes reward against the innocent. He that does these things shall never be moved. You know, God wants us to have a a, a positive and an uplifting spirit and and an uplifting effect on others. Let's take another scripture here, this time in Philippians chapter 2. I I think most of us uh, are going to be very surprised when we meet Jesus Christ for the first time. Uh, Have you ever thought about what you're going to say to him? I have. You know, the very first two words that are going to come out of my, my mouth, thank you. <laughs> thank you for being my saviour. Thank you for taking care of me through tough times. Thank you for encouraging me. Thank you for correcting me. A whole lot of thank yous. But the greatest thank you will be reserved for the fact that he laid down his life for each one of us. And so here in Philippians chapter 2, it says in verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. In other words, have a concern for others, not yourself. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him, 
the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, or each one of us here, I should say, not rather just you, but do you, do you think that it's wrong for us to, to you might say, um, think of ourselves equal with God? Jesus Christ didn't think it was robbery. Well, you might say, well, you know, hang on a minute, we're not equal with God, and of course you're right, we're not. And we never will be totally equal with God the Father. But I can tell you one thing, just as Jesus Christ was equal as a son of God, as a member of God's family, so there will be an equality. What's your family name? What's your surname? What's your last name? Well, is your son, does he have the same name? Or your daughter, does, does she have the same name? Is she equal with you in that regard, in that way? Yes. Does she share, does he share in the blessings that you have as a family? Does your son and or do you, your daughter sleep in a comfortable bed and enjoy good food and clean clothes because your wife or you as, as, a, as, a, as a wife or a mother take care of your children? Well, then they're equal with you in that regard. Now, you will always be mum or you will always be dad, that's for sure. But, you know, God wants to share his life with us for eternity. And he wants us to be in his family. He wants us to imbibe of that positive feel. And even if I might say in the right way, be proud of your family name, God. It's not wrong, even in this human life. To be proud of your, of your heritage and of your name. You know, if I, I'll tell you now that my father and my mother were always highly respected in the community. I always was proud to say that I was Rod King. Now, I know not everyone's that way. Some people are ashamed of their family or ashamed of their name. And that's sad. But I can tell you this, that in God's kingdom... You won't be ashamed of being a son or a daughter of God. And you will see Jesus Christ as he is because you shall be like him. You and I will be like our older brother, Jesus Christ. Notice, please, Romans chapter 12. This is how you and I can really begin preparing <coughs> to be like Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul wrote to the church in Rome and he said, I beseech you or I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And notice, be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed. The word conform means where you get like... Uh, some putty or some plasticine or some clay, you get squeezed and squashed into the shape of this world so that when you take that piece of clay away, it has the shape of the world on it. That's been conformed. But it says, be you not conformed to this world, but be you transformed. In other words, formed away from this world. It says, be you transformed by the renewing of your mind the mind of Jesus Christ, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. There's that word again. Do you remember Jesus Christ had the Holy Spirit without measure, 100%? Well, when we're spirit beings, we will have the faith and we will have the spirit without measure. And then it goes through and gives some guidelines on how we are to be with one another. Verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. And then it says, in verse 18, if it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Here at the Feast of Tabernacles, I'm sure you've already had some opportunities 
to rub shoulders with some of the people in the, in the town where you are. Here at the Feast of Tabernacles, I'm sure you've had the opportunity to rub shoulders with the people in the town, people that you've related to. If they were to be asked, what did you think of that person? What answer would they give? We are to be like Jesus Christ. So let's now turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 31. And notice how Jesus Christ was and how he wants us to be. In John chapter 13 and in verse 31, it says, Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Do you know that's our ultimate purpose? To have the glory of the Son and the the brightness of the Son. We're not yet glorified. But Jesus Christ was to be glorified. And verse 32, it says, If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straight away glorify him. Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, where I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. And by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. In other words, Jesus Christ said, the measure, the litmus test, the barometer by which we can know that we are going to be in God's kingdom is the love that we have for God the Father, the love that we have for Jesus Christ, and in this life and in this world, the love we have for one another. As the rest of the Feast of Tabernacles continues, please consider the wonderful, wonderful place that you are going to have in God's kingdom, and just consider and remember that you will see Jesus Christ And you will be like him as he is.